Coming up on the Filibuster Freestyle, we've got an author. That's right. Also a lawyer turned author. Same guy. John J. McDermott, author of As the Road Rose Up to Meet Me, A Few Steps Along the Way. Longtime friend of the show, first time appearance on the show, Filibuster Freestyle. It's your buddy Gavin, filibusterfreestyle.com. Last podcast, I do believe, of 2020. Here it is. Theme song's coming. As always, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the pod wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Deezer, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, etc., etc. And you can always check us out on social media, at Filibuster Freestyle, on the Instagram, and, of course, the Twitter. Filibuster, Filibuster Freestyle. All right, folks, as I said, longtime friend of the show, first time guest of the show, author, lawyer turned author, John McDermott. How are we doing, John? So far, so, so far, so good, Gav. I love it. I love it. And I hope you had a Merry Christmas, and I hope you're excited for 2021. Is it fair to say you're excited for it to not be 2020 anymore? That's, a, that's the understatement of the decade. Absolutely. All right. Well, hey, listen. So here we are. We've got a, a book that – a book – I don't – what would you call this, John? More of like a, a, a collection of short anecdotes? Is that a fair way to put this, first of all? Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I call it memoirs and stuff like that. I mean, the, the real purpose of writing these down was so that um, I have two sons, Dan and Brian, whom you know, Gavin. Um, yes. And just like a lot of, as you grow up, a lot of people say, yeah, I know what my, my father does or what my mother does for a living. But usually they don't Yeah. in terms of the flavor of what they do on a day-to-day basis. So... Um, as long as I as long as I can still remember some of these stories, I thought I'd write down some of the more entertaining ones of my uh, career as a as a trial lawyer or handling these things. And and I and obviously some things I haven't been able to include in this group just for confidentiality reasons. But these are mostly public records, or the people are deceased, so it's it's pretty harmless to be able to talk about it. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, flavor of the jobs that, that people do, and there is a lot of flavor in this one. So just before I I forget to say it again, so we're calling this As the Road Rose Up to Meet Me, a few steps along the way. And I'll just kick it off with the beginning of the of the stories, which I think is the earliest part of your legal career. It might have been before you were even a member of the bar. Um, but let's start with Otis, who apparently after Ali Frazier 3 decided to go for a, a jog sans clothing in the District of Columbia. And that was one of your first, at least the first case of, the, of this memoir. But why did Otis hate wearing clothes so much? You know, it's, I, Otis, Otis had a, um, uh, a mental disorder, okay. which was, and I, I, I don't recall what it was. Uh, I don't believe he's with us anymore. But whatever the form of that disorder was, it was it was controlled with medication, and he had a you know regular place to live. He had a job with the um, U.S. government, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, as I recall. Yes. Um, but you know all these fights back back then; these are like big events, and he he went off his medication. It's not that he so much had a trouble wearing clothes. It was it was a warm night, but you know <laughs> he was he was jogging 
stark naked down one of the major inter, inter, uh, interferes, one of the major streets in, in Washington, D.C., and um, was invited um, into custody by the, uh, by the police department. Right. What I thought was interesting about Otis was that, you know, because <laughs> you'd convinced him, uh, I think as a Raymond or whatever it was, I think a Raymond's the wrong word, but he, he wouldn't put his clothes on to come upstairs and be, be in front of the judge, so they, they ordered him to 90 days of observation, and then you were able to successfully argue, well, you've already kept the man for a misdemeanor for 90 days of observation. There's really no reason to have him serve any more time. Like, makes good sense to me. A lot of common sense there. Well, yeah, thank you. But um, the, the, the frustrating thing about that was that was my first, my first case on the defense side of, um, of a criminal case. And I, I pretty much convinced Otis to put his clothes back on in the cell block so he could come up. But in the mere you know, 15 minutes that I left him downstairs and got up to the courtroom, he dropped him again. So he never made it to the courtroom, and he was sent over to uh, what was then St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in southeast Washington. Yeah, gotcha. That's where, uh, John Hinkley, that's where John Hinckley ended up spending some time, too. That's right. You mentioned the that in the— you mentioned that. Assist, Who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Correct, correct, exactly. Yeah, that name stuck out to me. But So, yeah, so it was interesting that—that's got to be—I wasn't going to ask you this, but that's got to be frustrating as an attorney when you, you literally have a game plan— and 15 minutes later, the one thing you need the guy to do, he, he doesn't do. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's other examples of that along your career, but that's probably was a good first lesson that you can coach him up and you can lead him to water, but you can't make him drink, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, everybody has a game. I'm, I'm paraphrasing Mike Tyson now. Everybody has a, <laughs> a game plan until you get hit in the face yeah. <laughs> the first time. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened with Otis that day. Absolutely. All right. So that's um, what happened with Otis. Yeah. So one, I think you know it's always interesting to read somebody doing a memoir of their professional time because invariably, and there are many people you mention along the way who are great mentors to you and really helpful to you, whether it be in writing or anything else. But then there's always the manager who's you know, to quote you, this you had a manager who ha- created a matrix that measured nothing of importance, um, and I would just say. You know, was that your first introduction into into people who are somehow stumble their way into a managerial role despite the fact they have no common sense? Yeah, I mean, because they weren't. Understand this, Gavin. It was it's the federal government, so it's not like private sector where there's a profit motive or something else. It's just like, can I get to the next level so I can get my next salary increase? Mm. And, title, the motivation's a little bit different. And so in the federal government, oftentimes many agencies, they're not looking for for a stellar performance. They're looking for steady performance where people don't make waves. And uh, I think the guy, I think you're talking about a guy named Joe Valder. He, yes. uh, he fit that pretty, pretty neatly. <laughs> sounds, sounds like it. Sounds like you know, and again, that's a good, it's a good verse. You, you mentioned it's one of the few times in your career where you really, you know, kind of lost it out of frustration. And based, based on the fact that you were doing the most work and getting the least credit for it, seems like a pretty good description, the matrix that measured nothing of importance. In the same... Oh, yeah, we, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to... I just wanted to say in the same area, we, we talk about Mr. Johnson, the cab driver, which I wanted to get into. But if you want to stay on Valder for a second, feel free. 
Well, I just, I just wanted to say, because the listeners might not understand this, at this point in my career, I'm working as an assistant U.S. attorney in, in uh, D.C., and the, ideally what we're supposed to be doing is, you know, evaluating cases that are brought to us by law enforcement and prosecuting the guilty and using some judgment and, you know, exercising some judgment in, in, in terms of leniency also yeah. under the under the appropriate cases. But this guy, Volder, all he cared about was numbers. He, he completely lost sight of the mission of, uh, you know, what's fair, what's good, what, what justice is. And so that's why it was so frustrating with him. Yeah. That, but go ahead. You were talking about... Um, yeah, I was going to switch gears cat. hard and go to what I believe was a... And I could have the wrong circle, but I think it was either Logan Circle or DuPont Circle. It doesn't matter. But cab driver minding his own business, a hot summer night. Might have been a full moon, which, by the way, my wife, who's a nurse practitioner, there's a full moon today, and she said work's going to be a mess today. So it's good to know that the full moon effect has been happening forever. (laughs) But uh, Mr. Johnson was a cab driver. Somebody pulled a gun on him, threatened to shoot him. I'll let you take it from there because he then came into court and testified to this exact same exchange. Yes, well, the, the, the gunman, the would-be armed robber, was a fellow by the name of Rudolph Valentino Jones. Great name. Thanks, yeah, thanks to his mother, because, you know, otherwise I'd have never been able to remember that after so many years. But, um, yeah, Rudy um, initially just came up to um, Mr. Jones, who was um, driving the cab, as you said, and minding his own business, and first just demanded the money. And then uh, uh, Jones uh, pulled a, a, a pistol on him and told him, uh, give me the money or I'll blow your nuts off. <laughs> and, and, and Jones, without missing a beat, says, go ahead. They don't work anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then Jones fired, uh, dis- yeah, he discharged the, the firearm but not at, thankfully, not at Mr. Jones, just kind of into the air, thinking that was going to do it, and then started to run away. Um, he was caught a few blocks, uh, a few blocks away. But anyway, so he, he, all the the felony cases, they have to be run by something called a grand jury. It's not a, it's not the trial court things that you usually see on television or in movies. These things, grand juries, are really boring institutions. Poor people have to sit there all day and say, "Is there probable cause that this uh, this took place or it didn't take place?" Mm. And most most of the presentations are pretty boring as well. So I said, "Look, when it came time to Mr. Jones Jones's case, I said, now look, I want you to tell him exactly what happened.'" And, he, and then he said, "Really?" I said, "No, they're going to love it. They've been bored to tears for weeks. They'll love this story about your nuts not working." And sure enough. <laughs> They had to they had to adjourn the grand jury for like ten minutes. Everybody was laughing so hard and things like that. They, he was uh, the cab driver was excused, and they just thought you know that, that was the greatest thing in the world. And they, they're actually thanking me for bringing that case. Right, a fresh perspective, you know. <laughs> One of dozens, yeah. Yeah, that was definitely a, la- a laugh out loud moment to think about the judge having to basically have everybody take a little bit of a recess to kind of reset their. You know, being seriousness because the guy just deadpan delivered, you know, the line of the century. Um, yeah, that's a fantastic story. So um, yeah. I liked that. Another thing that I, I liked learning about was as you moved up through the prosecution ranks, getting into felonies and things like that, larger cases, more serious cases, 
you know, you would use what you dubbed as a minefield technique of kind of not asking questions about a certain portion of the case or a certain area, but almost laying breadcrumbs for the defense to then bring that up themselves. And then you'd kind of slam them in the face with information they didn't think you had, or maybe, you know, unprepared that you, they thought you were unprepared and you were prepared. So one, that seemed like it was pretty effective. Um, does word get around town that that's like something you like to do? Does it even matter because every case is different? I mean, how does the minefield technique work in terms of longevity? Well, first, first of all, there's, you know, you can't, as, as a trial lawyer, you don't even begin to attempt techniques like that until you've had a fair amount of experience. Sure. This is not, this is not for rookies. And I would say that before I started trying crap like that, I was, I had probably already had maybe 40 jury trials. And the idea is you go ahead and prove your case. You prove all the elements so that there's, there's enough evidence for the jury to convict. And then you just like dangle something Mm. and, uh, and sensing, sensing weakness, the, the defense counsel can't, can't help themselves. They just jump in and ask the question. And uh, that's when it kind of blows up in their face. Uh, the, example I, the example I like to use is, um, uh, and I'm not sure at this point whether I left it in the memoirs, but there was a, I was trying a case once and was, there was some fingerprint evidence. And when a somebody's comparing fingerprints, there are something called points of identification. And, and the more points of identification between the, the known and the latent imprint, the, essentially the stronger the testimony, the stronger the identification is. So I just asked the expert witness, um, you know, did you find a match? And are you happy that there's a match? And he said, yes. And then I, I didn't ask him for the number of points of identification, which I was aware of. Right. And so the defense attorney during cross-examination, he says, well, he didn't ask him for the number of points. So let me try this. And he says, isn't, there tr- isn't it true that there's a certain minimum number that you need before um, you can conclude that there's a point of identification? Yes, there is. And, and, and what is that number? I, I forget what the number is, but let's say it's five. And so thinking that I hadn't asked the question because I, didn't, I just barely had five, he said, so how many points of identification did you find, special agent? And the agent replied, 12. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy was just devastated. Just a sucker not punch, only, yeah. It, it, not, not only did he not like that answer, but it kind of threw him off his game for the next, you know, half hour of the trial. Right. So that's, that's what I meant. And, and the other part of your question was, did the word get around... Um, the word got around the courthouse. I, I don't know if this is still, still true or not with the heightened security. You used to be able to just breathe in and out of courthouses. There were no metal detectors and things like that when I first started. Um, but people would come, a lot of retirees would come to watch people try cases. Oh. So word, word would get around that uh, not, not just myself, but some other lawyers as well, might be more entertaining in a courtroom than, than some of our colleagues were. Mm. And we'd get a little bit of a gallery. But the word never really spread among the defense bar because they don't they don't usually have the vehicle to, you know, trade stories like that among themselves. Got it. Makes sense. So that's actually pretty good. You can kind of keep that, you know, just for the fans, right? Just for the... Uh, the oh, yeah. The, exactly. But that's great. I mean, that's, that's good to hear. And it's, it's unfortunate. Tell you what... It, 
That sounds like a nice activity for a retiree to just wander into court and maybe get entertained for free. But, but you know, again, security is what it is. Speaking of colorful characters, um, and just because you're colorful doesn't mean you're good at practicing law or entertaining, but this guy, Mike Nussbaum, was hired to represent people who were, I think, engaging in litigation against you for some reason or, or, or something to that effect. Sounds like he was a combination of obnoxious a-hole and terrible lawyer. Is he the apex predator of that combination that you've encountered in your years? I mean, he was named in the book, so I have to imagine he's the leader in the clubhouse, but thoughts on Mike Nussbaum? I've, I've, I've never met a bigger prick in my life professionally <laughs> than Michael Nussbaum. He, he, and, and as we got into it, I, well, the circumstances are this. I, I won a big case um, on behalf of a widow against the... Uh, uh, Iranian government who was responsible for torturing and killing her husband who was a uh, marine lieutenant colonel in, um, in Lebanon named Rich Higgins and so I got, I got a big judgment from the court and I was in the process of changing law firms and the law firm that I was with uh, when I tried the case they wanted the entire fee, even though my time was split between that firm and the firm that I went to. Mm -hmm. And after a minimal amount of time, they just said, oh, well, we're going to try and be tough guys and we're just going to sue McDermott for the entire fee. And they hired this guy, Nussbaum, and he was all bluster. He had, a, he, and I, I, I had a couple of friends of mine because you don't defend yourself. Right. I had a couple of friends right. of mine, a, a rowing buddy named Paul Knight and a, and Gary Adler, who I'd worked with for, at that point, about 20 years, to defend me. And they were, they were just astounded by this guy. And so it, as the case went on, I'm, I'm a witness. I'm the defendant, and I'm a witness because I'm getting sued for this money. And I was just, I didn't have to, I couldn't play the usual games that I described and the other things, but I was just, you know, I could say stuff like, Wow, you are awful. <laughs> you're just, you're terrible. And he would, and he said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "No, I mean you're just a really bad lawyer." <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was, it would infuriate him. Well, you know, you're doing your a lot part. Of fun. Yeah, I mean, he a lot was. Of fun. Yeah, he was an we ended up settling. We ended up settling that case, and you know. You know, water under the bridge. Of course, of course, but you know, no, no love lost with Mikey, Mikey Nussbaum. Um, no. Then there's there's the late Mikey Nussbaum. Okay, well, R.I.P. as always. Um, yes. So, so <laughs> speaking of you know, I guess maybe shorter lived partnerships. Um, Kyle's and McDermott was a, a firm that you were a part of on a handshake agreement, and I'm not going to go into that. If folks read the read the memoir, they'll get a chance to. But your your partner had represented a lot of athletes and i can actually remember as a little kid coming to visit you with my father and i think dexter manley or somebody was in there some high profile you know a client you know not for legal legal issues necessarily just like he was a client which is pretty cool um maybe it was charles mann i forget it was one of the guys on the redskins washington football team d-line right um yes yes but <laughs> but and it, and it sticks with me because athletes you know when you meet an athlete and you're a little kid it's like holy cow so anyway, I'm thinking, though, you know, during the time, late 20th century, athletes, you know, you're in the mix of representing them, your partner's in the mix of representing them, both for business interests, but also probably when things go wrong. 
Are there any examples of things people used to get into that if it happened today under the microscope of camera phones and everything else, social media, would have been absolutely just bananas, scandalous type stuff? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, you're in good memory remembering Dexter Manley who was a tight end for the Redskins. Uh, yeah, he was a client, and I represented him because he was uh, pulled over by the police, and he brought out this fake deputy sheriff's uh, badge. So he was he was charged with impersonating a law enforcement officer. Not good. <laughs> um, and we've we've had we've had yeah some other stuff. It's not so much that because bad things go on still well, like I had guys who were charged with sexual assault and one guy who was a, a kicker for the Dolphins who ended up he went to Clemson but then ended up getting uh, indicted for heroin distribution <laughs> after a while he went into the pharmaceutical business after football got it um, <laughs> I, I did not I did not represent him on that you just get an amazing group of uh, of people we had one guy who um, played at Texas. Family was from Kansas City. I'm trying to remember what team he was on. He might, it, it might have been the Chiefs. But anyway, he was in a bar in, in Kansas City in the Overland Park uh, area, and uh, there was another big guy. This, uh, this fellow was an offensive lineman. And there was another big guy who was just calling him out. The guy was drunk. And... and he, our guy was trying to avoid the, the the conflict, but the guy was really obnoxious. So finally, he made a sw- he made a swing at our guy. But the, the odd thing was that he was wearing a prosthetic uh, forearm. Oh, jeez! Oh, so my guy grabbed it, and it literally he literally pulled the guy's arm off <laughs> in the bar. <laughs> And he was screaming like, ah, and dropped it just like you think in some movie or something. Um, wow. It was the craziest thing. And then, the you know, the drunk sues our guy uh, for uh, breaking his arm, literally. Right, literally ripping his, his fake arm off his body is prosthetic. Well, that, see, that's the kind of thing that you know the camera phone would have been out, and that would be all over ESPN today. Exactly, yeah. Wow, yeah, that's a really good example. I mean... And honestly, the the unintentional and intentional comedy of of what you could do with that footage if you had the right editors. I mean, holy cow! So, yeah, yeah. And and to your point, you know, in, in that era, it probably never went any further than maybe a local newspaper briefing or something, right? I mean, I'm sure it was pretty low key relative to today, for sure, for sure. Yeah, he was he was never he was never arrested, and it was just a civil lawsuit, which we. Um, after a little negotiation back and forth, we were able to make go away. There you go. No TMZ, no, you know, Us Weekly, none of that. So that's, that's probably good for everybody. Um, none of that, exactly. Lo- right. longing, for those, uh, longing for those days. So um, one of the other things that seemed to be prevalent in the late 20th century, and I'm, I'm, it probably still is, but I think people are just more self-aware now, is there, were, there seemed to be a number of people who utilize their office computer for extracurricular activities that we would all know now is not something you would want to use your office computer for. I'll put it that way. Um, is it, was it just these random people, or is that just something that people didn't get back then, and, and, and it just seemed to be something where 
you know, people had an airtight an air case or they were playing hardball or whatever, and then, you know, you probably subpoena their computer records and all of a sudden they want to settle out of court really quickly. Was that just, I, I guess, I, I was just, the early days of the internet seems to have been a big weakness for people at work. Is that a fair statement? I don't think it was the early days. It's Gavin, it, it continues to be a weakness. Really? Okay, yeah. People are, and, and the best example of that are, are what the insanely embarrassing things that people will post on Facebook, you know, maybe when they're drunk or high or something like that, you know, for whatever reason, but they'll do it. Mm-hmm. And true. all of that in, all of that in litigation, um, it's discoverable. You can find that out. You can download that stuff. Because you're trying to find out more about the person who's, uh, you know, on the other side of the table bringing the lawsuit or defending the lawsuit. Um, And, you know, lawyers I know who work exclusively in employment cases uh, where someone is saying they were wrongfully terminated because of, you know, retaliation or their feelings are hurt or... They're, they're depressed or things like that. That's the first thing that they go for is the social media stuff. So in the early days, frankly, that wasn't that wasn't available. The computers were just used as, um, you know, like word processors, really, right? I mean, more more efficient word processors. That's exactly what I was trying to remember. Word processors, uh, but it wasn't until um, you know Facebook, and then afterwards that this this all took off. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I guess I guess I was a little just shocked at how early it started, where you could find things that were a little bit damning in terms of a case or someone's um, reputation or both. So I, I found that interesting just to see maybe how early it started. I guess, um, but again, it just goes to show you. And it had me thinking as I was reading it, like, yeah, even when you're joking around, you just have to be incredibly careful because in a vacuum, there's no context, and uh, <laughs> the words that you write are the words that you write, regardless, right? So, um, yeah. Before that, you'd have to use, you'd have to rely exclusively on private investigators, interviews. Uh, remember one case that we that involved a trade dispute. We literally sent investigators into dumpsters outside the other company's um, mm-hmm. facility to retrieve trash and made the case out of the trash. <laughs> but it makes sense, right? Because that's the only way you can get info. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, all right, so one of my favorite um, stories in the book in terms of the, the title of the, of the, of the anecdote, the, the memoir piece, is for $80,000, $85,000, excuse me, I'd tell you I love you too. Um, and that involves, sounds like a woman fell in love with a con man, and you guys end up tracking him down on the Outer Banks. So I guess if you want to summarize the high points of that, and then my question for you is how the hell did you track the con man down in the Outer Banks? Well, that was the old-fashioned stuff. That was through using detectives, and um, there was some inter- internet research available then, but we, we found them doing that. Anyway, the woman's name, we'll just call her Kathy. Kathy uh, had never married. A uh, nice person, uh, was friends with some friends of mine, including a law school classmate by the name of Brian Tomasek. And she was close to Brian, who worked in one of the bigger firms in town, and found herself being cheated out of $85,000 by a guy who said he was going to, um, he wanted to marry her and build a house together and build a life together. And at this point, Kathy was in her 
oh geez, I don't know, maybe late 30s and stuff, had her own business and and really accomplished some things in life, but she was kind of uh, lonely for lack of a better term. So she was susceptible to that type of come on. And so the guy took the 85 grand and, uh, and disappeared. So she was all upset. She called my friend Brian, whom she knew, and told her the story. And, and he said, how much did you give him? And he, she said, well, $85,000, to which Brian Tomasek replied, well, for $85,000, Kathy, I tell you, I'd love you too. <laughs> it's a lot of cash, you know. It's a lot yeah, of cash. Yeah, especially then. And he, um, you know, as I said, he was one of the big firms. That's not the sort of case they would take. So he said, don't worry, I got a friend named John McDermott. You know, you might be able to help you out. So we found the guy, we sued him, got the judgment, which was initially not collectible because then he skipped town again. But he was, uh, Kathy would not would not give this up. Like, you know, hell hath no fury. Yes, right. Like some woman scoring type thing. And she went to uh, the America's Most Wanted television series. That's right. And they, tra- they tracked the guy down within two weeks. He was living in some um, northern Miami uh, suburb with his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Classic con man. But that's, I forgot about the America's Most Wanted piece. That's fantastic. I mean, that show was, yeah. that show was everywhere. That show was big time back in the day, for sure. It was. It's one of the first, like, reality TV-type mediums and true crime. You know, think about reality TV and true crime, two things that America is still obsessed with. That was one of the first, to my knowledge, kind of macro meetings of those two genres. Um, that's interesting. I forgot about that part. So let me, let me ask you this. Um, and I forget the guy's last name. I think his name is Kevin, but there's a holiday party scene in the book where there's a a poor woman, I think she might have been one of the receptionists who yells, Kevin's dead, Kevin's dead. He was just asleep under her desk after a long holiday party. Can, can, can you give any context to the shenanigans of uh, why Kevin was asleep under his desk? And are there any other just late 20th century D.C. holiday office party shenanigans that you're able to share, uh, whether involving yourself or just through hearsay? Uh, well, let's just stay with Kevin because that's you, you, his real name's in in the memoir, <laughs> and we'll. But for this purpose, we'll stay with Kevin. Kevin uh, was at a party and was at our Christmas party and was overserved, as were a number of us. Uh, some people had the presence of mind to get rooms in the hotel, <laughs> where after the party shut down, all sorts of other stuff was going on. Um, but it was just. It was just that 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 it was one of those examples of something, Gavin, that could never occur now. Yes. Um, oh, actually, actually, it it could, and that's why it's funny. What what's the name of that? Um, it was like a Christmas party movie. It came out in the last couple. of Oh, years. actually, uh, it was like Office Christmas Party, I think. Or Office, Office Christmas. Party. Yeah, with Jason Bateman. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. So. It, it's like it's like the writer was at some of these Christmas parties. Got it. That, that that used to go on, and the reason why Office Christmas Party as a movie is so funny is that it seems so implausible now. But back then, oh, it was amazing. Very plausible. Got it. <laughs> Very plausible. Just, just amazing. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, two two questions for you. These are unrelated to the to the memoir, but. Um, 
you know, working in D.C. all these years, living in D.C. all these years, um, you know, you, you probably come into contact with a lot of lobbyists, a lot of, lot of lobbies, you know, different industries that need to try to curry favor or, or curry influence. Is there like a niche but powerful lobby? So not necessarily the lobbyist or the lobbyist's company, but the the group of people being represented that wield maybe an un uh, an unthought of level of influence or power based on you know maybe the public perception of their power. So I'll make up you know like the remote control makers of America. You know are they incredibly powerful despite. Nobody in my shoes thinking the remote controls even need lobbyists. You know, is there anything like that that sticks out? Uh, no, no, not not any particular group. Um, let me let me describe this in a different way. Sure. Um, effective lobbying has always been able to get someone to listen to you, and sometimes there are. Um, and Washington is an interesting place to to practice law because we get a chance to I've had a chance to work on Capitol Hill as well as in the courthouse um, over the years and I've, I've learned a little bit just because I've hung around people that hung out on Capitol Hill a whole lot um, but it used to be that there, I mean there still is a system of congressional committees both on the House and Senate side and as you would gain in seniority in those committees you became a more important representative and more the target of lobbying efforts and also campaign contributions. Sure. Uh, the campaign contributions is still, is that, that system is pretty much in effect, but in the last decade or so, um, the, the, the power of the committee chairman has really been usurped by the leader's in the respective houses. Ah. So that would be the Speaker of the House, the Minority Leader, and the Majority and the Minority Leader in the Senate. So there was, a, there was this bill that they've been trying to pass for the last month or so. It's COVID-related re- relief. Right. There, there were like 10 people in a room that negotiated that. There were no committee hearings. There were no um, witnesses testifying, things like that. They got together, a small group got together, a number of times and hammered this out. So the answer, the answer to your question is, because the answer is the same, which is who will they take your call? So if, there's, if, if the legislation is being crafted by 10 people or 20 people, it's like who can get to those 10 or 20 people or as many of them as you can? Right. And I'm not, I'm not sure who can do that. Um, I actually had a case where I was representing one of my partners, Tommy Quinn, and he was asked to testify at a sentencing hearing for a fellow named Armand D'Amato. And Armand D'Amato, this was in, was, uh, had been convicted in federal court in Long Island of undue influence on the senior senator uh, from New York oh. named Alphonse D'Amato, who was the chair at the time of the Senate Finance Committee. Senate banking, sorry. Um, and um, the allegation was that, that he, this was some, somehow a corrupt relationship because, you know, oh, well, it's not, you know, how, how should Armand get 
get fees because it's his brother. Right. And my partner went in and explained to the judge that at the end of a legislative session and they're trying to get an appropriations bill passed or some other piece of, of legislation, telephone calls are coming in like a tidal wave. Uh, faxes back in those days, uh, emails, things like that, just overwhelming and you can't get to it. So as Tom said, if someone calls the office, who's he gonna take the call from? Well, his mother, probably. <laughs> and, and then how about his brother? And isn't that worth something? Yeah. And the judges just started nodding and the prosecutors are looking at themselves like, who is this guy? <laughs> and, <laughs> and he says, so it's worth it to get that kind of access. It's worth it to have someone that someone is willing to listen to. Right. And so the, the answer to your question is, we've got a new administration coming in now, so there'll be new people in the in the new administration, but not a, un, until this Georgia race is um, is decided, Georgia Senate race is decided in a couple of weeks, it could be the same players we have now on Capitol Hill, or that could change. Got it. No, it makes a lot of sense. It, you know, and, and it's, you know, you referenced it earlier um, in the $85,000 case, which is, you know, do you got a guy, you know, and, and in that case, it's do you got a guy who will help me with this trial? And in lobbying, it's like, who knows, the, who knows the guy or gal who can get to the person, right? And so, to your point, unshockingly, it's all about relationships, right? Um, exactly right. Last, last question that I have planned, speaking of relationships, speaking of adventurous people, you've got a buddy uh, and a, 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 a business associate named Robbie. Um, I'll leave it at that, but are there any adventures with Robbie that you can share? Because I... I've, off the record, you know, in our private conversations, I've enjoyed learning about Robbie. And I wonder if there's anything we can share about Robbie for the listeners. And if not, you know, I'd love to talk to Robbie one day on the podcast anyway. Uh, sure. Well, since, since that's your last question, Robbie is Kevin. <laughs> Robbie had the, uh, um, Robbie has, has managed to um, take his, lobbying practice um, and and um, his name is Rob Harmala his full name by the way uh, oh that's the same Robbie okay good got it yeah, same same Robbie and he's we refer to him in the family as Danny and Brian's stepfather right because when, when they were in high school he volunteer he volunteered that if anything happened to me he was willing to marry my wife Pat <laughs> and raise them as as, uh, as his own and then when when son Danny got married, just, Robbie just invited himself to the wedding, which was held in some resort in um, in Mexico, and That's... charmed everybody. So we've got a, we've got a long um, we've got a long history of working together on a variety of interesting topics. I think probably Gavin, the best thing to do it would be we'll do another podcast. Yep. Rob and I together, and we'll tell you the stuff we could talk about yep. and the stuff we can't. That is. That is dynamite. In fact, I love it because it's a part two with John McDermott, but it allows us to bring Rob, it allows us to bring Robbie up now, um, and and whether we go by Kevin or not, you know, Robbie's not dead. Robbie's Robbie's alive and well, and he's got stories to tell. And so, I think now that you've been introduced to the Frillabuster Freestyle listeners, John, you can help us break Robbie into the to the lexicon as well. And uh, couldn't be more excited for the part two. Really, couldn't be. That'd be great. Fantastic. I look forward to it, Gavin. 
That's awesome. All right, John, first of all, thanks for coming on. Um, again, let me ask you this, actually. Is, are, you, are you, I mean, clearly you've, you've, you've finished this work, you know, is, are you trying to, are you trying to shop it around at all? Is it more just for private distribution? What's, what's the plan with this, with these memoirs? Oh, it's, it's available if anybody wants to read them. I don't, I don't care. It's not, it's not copyrighted. It's not, like I said, once, once my sons read it, that the, the mission was accomplished. If some, some other people read it and got a few laughs out of it, all the better. Beautiful. But it's not a it's it's not a for profit uh, venture at all. I see. Okay. Well, that that being said, if anybody is interested in listening, again, as the road was up to meet me, a few steps along the way, and John, first of all, on the air, happy New Year to you and your family. I hope you guys have a great celebration. I can think of early days in my life, uh, some New Year's Eve with you and your family. So I hope you guys have a good one. Anything good planned in this COVID uh, COVID New Year's? Well, we've got no place to burn it. Christmas tree, Gavin, if that's what you're talking about in terms of old New Year's Eve memories. But uh, no, I'm afraid it's going to be a, a cold, cold COVID New Year's Eve, and we're looking for a better one next year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, stick around for a minute, John, so we can say our proper goodbyes. But everybody else, filibusterfreestyle.com is where you can find us. John McDermott, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. All right, guys, that was John McDermott. Really quickly, he mentioned the Christmas tree piece. So I don't know what year it was, but it was a New Year's Eve and John and my father were getting rid of John's Christmas tree. And I don't know all the details, but at the end of the Christmas season, the Christmas tree tends to be very dry and therefore flammable. And his lawn, John's lawn, John and Pat's lawn was covered with snow. They lived on the top of a very steep hill. And I believe the express version of it is the tree was lit on fire this is decades ago, and rolled down the hill and obviously didn't create any damage because it, it landed in the sidewalk, which was covered in snow, and just kind of faded away. But that's the Christmas tree story of New Year's past. So anyway, happy New Year to everybody. Thank you for making this year uh, the most listened-to year in filibuster freestyle history. Really appreciate it. We're about three weeks away from our sixth anniversary. Hard to believe how quickly this has gone since 2015, but thanks for being a part of it and being along for the ride. And to all of our pundits, our guests, our listeners, our fans, our friends, everybody, stay safe, stay happy. Better days are hopefully ahead and they are hopefully not too far around the corner. Filibuster Freestyle. Happy New Year.